Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, indeed, we are back for a brand new series, and tonight it's our Naked Scientist Science Q&A programme, an hour of your science questions on any subject. You just need to call into the programme, numbers coming shortly, you can email and text too, we'll be giving you all the details, any question goes, you just call up, and Helen, who's also here with me, will help to answer them, and also we have Dave. Now, we're not going to introduce Dave quite yet, because he's out at Hunsbury Park Primary School to do this week's Kitchen Science, more on that shortly, but uh, anyway, I'm Chris Smith, and we are the Naked Scientist. Helen, what else have we got coming up tonight? Well, yes, as always on The Naked Scientist, we will be giving you the very latest rundown of, from the world of science, medicine and technology. So this week we will find out how, for the first time ever, scientists have watched an, ex- watched an exploding star. And we'll hear about a jacket that thinks it's a chameleon, changing the way it looks to improve your mood. And Dave will be coming in to tell us um, all about... Uh, coming online, uh, telling us all about the Smart One probe that crashed into the moon. And my story is, are birds and bees really the whole story of pollination? Thanks, Helen. And if you're in an experimental mood tonight, then our kitchen science experiment will be right up your street. What you're going to need is a fizzy vitamin C tablet or perhaps some Alka-Seltzer or some bicarbonate of soda, something fizzy. You'll need some cooking oil and something to make a bit of water go a nice colour. So some food colouring or maybe some Ribena. That's kitchen science, which is coming up very, very shortly. We'll also be catching up this week with the launch of the BA Festival of Science, the UK's largest science festival. It started up in Norfolk. And it happened yesterday, and there was a world record-breaking attempt to try to get as many people as possible inside a single bubble. And Nikki Barnes will be joining us live from uh, up in Norwich to tell us all about the record-breaking attempt later on in tonight's show. But if you want to get in touch with us, 08459 is the phone number. Email chris at nakedscientist.com or text 07786 20 1960. The Naked Scientist Podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. It is The Naked Scientist, and let's get uh, straight off to a bit of kitchen science experimentation because Derek and Dave are back in full force on this week's programme, and they're at Hunsbury Park Primary School, joined by Paige and Jack, and they're going to tell you how to make a lava lamp. Derek. Hello there, and welcome this week to Hunsbury Park Primary School, where we, we've come to do some fantastic science, and of course we're back after the break too, so that's great. How are you feeling, Dave? I'm feeling good, Derek. OK, good stuff. And what have we got lined up today from Hunsbury Park Primary School? Well, we're going to be building a lava lamp out of stuff you've got in your kitchen. OK, there you go, building a lava lamp. And also, uh, we've got some fantastic helpers here from the school. Um, would you care to tell us your names and your ages, please? I'm Paige, and I'm nine. Um, my name's Jack, and I'm 11. All right, then. Well, thank you very much for coming down and helping us out with the experiment. And you will, of course, be doing it. So, 
I hope you're looking forward to that. Anyway, Paige, we're going to be doing some science today. So what do you like about science? Like making stuff and testing them out. All right then, OK. And what about yourself, Jack? Well, I love science. I like the human body and gory bits. OK, gory stuff. All right, have we got any gory stuff lined up at all, Dave? If you had the right kind of imagination, possibly. But, you know, we'll find out. All right, maybe in a future week we'll have some gory stuff. Who knows? OK, then. So, here we go. If you want to do this at home, you can do so. And it's very, very easy. So um, do just listen to these ingredients and see if you've got them, basically. Uh, the first thing is some cooking oil. So you'll need a fair amount of that, maybe two cupfuls or something. Um, you need a big pint glass or maybe a large jam jar or something, some kind of large transparent vessel that you can kind of do this experiment in. You need a bit of water just from the tap. And if you can actually get some squash and make it coloured, then that would be good as well. You'll get a much better effect. Also, you need some kind of tablet which you drop into water and which fizzes and dissolves. So this could be soluble aspirin, soluble vitamin C, something like that. And if you don't have that, then you can use baking powder, but it is not quite as cool. And if you don't have baking powder for a still less cool but still somewhat cool effect, if you get my meaning, uh, you can use some salt. OK, so there you go. Preferably, if you've got a soluble tablet, that would be great. Now then, uh, Dave has got the whole method lined up here, so would you care to instruct Paige and Jack what to do? All we've done already is we've put maybe about a couple of centimetres of coloured water in the bottom of our jam jar. Now, Paige, if you could pour a load of oil on top of that, fill the jam jar nearly to the top with the oil. OK, how's that going, Paige? Looks all gooey. OK, and Paige has actually emptied the oil bottle, which is brilliant. So there we go. We've got quite a bit. So how deep do you reckon that oil is there, Paige? Um, about 20 centimetres. OK, yeah, I reckon maybe a little bit less. It might be about 10 or 15 centimetres deep, but there's still a fair amount of oil. So that looks healthy, does it, Dave? That looks about right, yeah. OK, good. And what next? Well, the next bit's really simple. All you do is chuck in your fizzy tablet into that and see what happens. OK, so there you go. You've got to chuck the fizzy tablet into the oil. And, of course, if people don't have those tablets, then with the baking powder, for example, what do they do there? The problem with the baking powder is it's quite hard to get the baking powder into the water through the oil. So maybe the best thing to do would be to put it into the water and then chuck the oil on really quickly. So let's not forget, of course, that this is a two-layered kind of mixture we've got because oil kind of the, it floats on top of the water. That basically means that it's, it's important to get whatever you're putting in. It's got to get down there, down to the water level. So, uh, so you might need to kind of prod it a bit to do that or just put the baking powder in first and then the oil on top. And finally... And if you're using salt, you probably want to use a lot more water and less oil and just pour the salt on the top. Now then, uh, we've got this all ready to go. We're not going to do it now, of course. We're going to come back later in the show and find out what happens. But Paige and Jack, what do you think is going to happen when we actually do this? Paige, what do you reckon? I think it, when you put the tablets in, I think it's going to make a fizzy reaction or something. OK, yeah, I think that sounds quite sensible. What about you, Jack? Um, I think it's going to explode and make loads of bubbles. All right, OK. Are you kind of hoping it's going to explode? Yeah. Yeah, OK, fair enough. Right. Dave's grinning mischievously, so he knows what's going to happen. Anyway, um, if you would like to do this at home, then you're very welcome to do so, and we would love you to tell us what happens too, uh, because if you do and you get it right, then you can win a prize from us. So you can ring on 08459 25 2000, uh, and you can also email chris at thenakedscientist.com, and uh, I do hope you've got all of those things and fancy trying it. Anyway, we'll be back here at Hunsbury Park Primary School later on in the show to find out what happens so until then it is back to you the naked scientists supported by the welcome trust
This is The Naked Scientist with Chris and Helen. Now, it's always been thought that pollination of plants by insects began with flowering plants and flying insects. But new research published this week in the journal Science suggests that more primitive plants, the mosses, may be pollinated by soil-dwelling insects like springtails. Now, before the evolution of plants bearing flowers, the ones we call angiosperms, more ancient mosses and ferns were the main green plants on land. These plants have swimming sperm, so for a long time biologists have assumed that mosses and ferns didn't need pollinating pollinating services of insects and since as long as there's rain around for the sperm to swim through, they can do that all by themselves. But there is one problem the mosses and ferns encounter and that is that the sperm can't swim very far. So there is something of a puzzle over how female plants manage to produce their version of seeds, which are called sporophytes, when the closest male plant might be at least 10 or 20 centimetres away. Now, to help answer this conundrum, a team of scientists from Lund University in Sweden set up clusters of moss in petri dishes covered in plaster of Paris designed to trap any sperm produced by the males. Now, the cluster of the moss patches were um, either touching each other or spaced apart by two or four centimetres. And the team discovered that if there were no mites or springtails in these petri dishes, then the female moss plants would only produce these sporophytes if they were actually touching another male. But when they added creatures into the, t- into the dishes, the female plants could produce offspring to the males that were, from the males that were two and four centimetres away. So it also seems that the bugs may have been deliberately visiting the mosses because five times more of them were found living in the fertile mosses compared to the infertile mosses. Although we don't yet know what the springtails and the mites might be after because obviously bees are after nectar and pollen and things which they can eat. So it's not quite clear what those mites are after but they do seem to be playing quite an important role in pollination and it helps us to explain how mosses might be able to reproduce in dry conditions because if it's not raining, those sperm can't swim at all. And it basically tells us gives us a hint that those plant-animal interactions are considerably more ancient than we thought they were before. It's also quite interesting that the behaviour of the moss changed when it was or wasn't touching, and is that known how that's achieved? I don't know if the behaviour changes, but I think it's just that, you know, basically they can't successfully reproduce when there's not another moss right next to it. I mean, I'm not quite sure how artificially those sperm were being stopped from moving by this plaster of Paris and exactly how far they would move in the wild. Perhaps that will be the next key in understanding this particular question. But uh, it certainly helps us understand a bit more about how life went on land before the flowering plants arrived. Well, anyone that's uh, been acquainted with uh, Douglas Adams, and uh, I'm sure, Helen, you've read um, Douglas Adams' great um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, and in fact, he went to my college in Cambridge. He's very close to my heart, yes. Well, one of his other things that he wrote was, of course, the restaurant at the end of the universe. And uh, what people could do at the restaurant at the end of the universe was go and enjoy a candlelit dinner while you watch the universe blow up in front of you. Now, they haven't quite managed to do this at the Barrera Observatory in Milan, but they've done the next best thing, which is to see a star turn supernova to blow up and end its life. Because up until now, we knew stars did this, but no one's ever seen it happen. How did they do it? Well, a, a chap called Sergio Campana from the Brera Observatory relied on a satellite which was put into space by NASA and the European Space Agency a couple of years ago and that satellite's called SWIFT and it's called SWIFT because it has a very fast reaction. It looks for intense bursts of energy, either X-rays or gamma rays 
and they're produced when a star goes through its death throes, when a star's building up to explode. And the satellite can then spin round and point itself in the direction that this gamma-ray burst or X-ray flash is coming from. And it then trains not only its own cameras on the area of the sky that the burst is coming from, but it also signals to Earth-based and ground-based telescopes where to look. And so what the researchers were able to do was to very quickly orientate SWIFT in the direction of a, of a certain origin of these X-rays that were coming from space. And luckily, this star that blew up did something a little bit unusual, and it put this uh, burst of X-rays out for a little while before it then produced this massive explosion. And so what the researchers were able to do was to watch it literally explode in front of their eyes and for the first time get a handle on how big it was because we know that very, very big stars build up to a huge explosion and then they collapse to form a black hole. But smaller stars do what this star did. This one was roughly six times the size of our sun and we know that because as it blew up it produced a sort of shock wave that illuminated the envelope, the outer cocoon of the star. And what they were able to do is therefore work out A, how big it was and to see what it became. And it uh, looks like it turned into what's called a neutron star, a sort of stellar cinder, if you like. Yes, you're listening to The Naked Scientist. Keep your questions coming in to us. We're waiting right here in the studio. So the phone, line is, uh, phone number is 08459 call, call us on anything at all to do with science, medicine, technology, and we will do our best to answer your questions. Now, graphic pictures of sharks being butchered, sometimes alive, for their fins to make shark's fin soup, and not something that we would associate with the UK or Europe. But in fact, it's thought that as many as a third of the fins supplying the Hong Kong market in shark's fins comes from European waters. And this week, a newly formed, the newly formed Shark Alliance, a, n- a non-governmental organisation, has expressed dismay at proposed changes in EU legislation which could increase the illegal and controversial practice of shark finning. Now, at the moment, shark finning is banned in many countries around the world, including the EU. The process involves cutting off the fins from sharks while the fishermen are still at sea and dumping the shark's body, which is much less valuable, and then bringing just the fins back into port. Now, finning is a major driving force in the over exploitation of sharks globally because many more sharks can be killed if only the fins are brought back to land. Now currently in the EU fishermen are allowed to remove the fins from sharks at sea so the bodies can be frozen and the fins are dried but to make sure that the fins come from only the carcasses on board and not from other sharks that are dumped at sea current regulations demand that the weight of fins that are is as a proportion of the total catch must not exceed 5% which essentially means that we're assuming that 5% of the weight of a shark comes from its fins. Now, this is already much higher than is allowed in other countries, including the US and Canada, which say that it's only 2% of a shark that's made up of its fins, and that's based on scientific studies of the true ratio of the different parts of sharks. And the problem in Europe is that now there have been calls to increase this shark, this fin proportion to 6.5% of total catches, and that's because most of the sharks caught in European waters are blue sharks, and they've got really big fins. And what, are the, what are the actual implications then? So what this could mean is effectively that um, we could be looking at at least some, maybe three sharks being finned for every one that's landed. So this is essentially allowing for more finning illegally to go, could take place at sea. And we know that sharks are especially vulnerable to overfishing because they're very slow growing and they sometimes take 20 years until they first give birth. Um, but what this all really means is that European fisheries are playing a really important role that we wouldn't really expect in the shark's fin trade, which we really associate more with kind of Asian 
Indonesian and tropical countries. But these proposed changes to our own regulations really could have wide-ranging and negative impacts on sharks around the world, especially if other nations take our lead and start increasing this proportion that's allowed of fins versus the, the entire weight of the shark's fin. So we will wait until the end of September for the European Parliament to vote on this, but it could really be bad news for shark populations. It's quite a sobering thought, isn't it? Thanks, Helen. You're listening to The Naked Scientists, Chris and Helen, and we're with you for about another 45 minutes. Dave is going to tell us now about the Smart One mission to the moon. Hi, Dave. Hi, Chris. Yes. Now, now tell us what's happened with Smart One. First of all, tell well, us what, you know, what is Smart One? Smart One is a probe which the European Space Agency have built. Um, it was ba- mostly built to test technologies like an extra-efficient ion drive. Instead of working like a normal rocket, which burns things, makes it really hot and throws it out the back, um, and there's a limit to how fast you can, how hot you can get it, so how fast you can get it to fly out the back. This was using electric fields to charge up a gas and throw it out the back far faster than you would do a nor- nor- with a normal rocket. This means you need much less fuel than you would do for the same rocket to move it. So it's managed to travel 100 um, million kilometres on only 60 kilos of fuel. Which it launched in 2003, going, really. didn't it, Dave? Yeah, that's right. Um, it's been going for 16 months, apparently. And it t- took a long time to get to the moon because although this drive is incredibly efficient, it can't actually push very hard. It pushes maybe like a couple of postage stamps. The advantage of space, because there's no friction, if you keep pushing for long enough with a couple of postage stamps, amount of force, you can build, the speed can build up and up and up. And it got to the moon. Now, once it got to the moon, it spent a, couple, it spent a while taking photos of the moon. And they've taken the most detailed photos we have of the whole moon down to about 40 meter resolution. It's quite interesting um, because didn't it also fly over the Apollo landing site um, and therefore dispel myths that uh, the moon missions were faked? Yes, it couldn't actually see the lander itself. The resolution wasn't good enough for that. But it could take pictures of the surrounding areas and find things which were in the photos which they took from the ground, which, which they couldn't have known about if they hadn't landed there, um, which they hadn't got any pictures of before. So unless they were psychic when they set up the sets to fake the moon landings, then the moon landings had to have happened, really. But it was all sort of curtains for Smart One when it ran out of fuel this week, wasn't it? Or last week, sorry. Well, yeah, they uh, ran out of fuel and they decided the most useful thing you can do with a probe which, which has run out of fuel is to actually crash it into the moon because this means that when it crashes into the moon, it fly, flies in with lots and lots of energy, and that should make a bit of a um, crater. And with um, astronomers in Hawaii managed to see the um, plume and the flash, and this means you can look at the composition of the Earth, which it's thrown up, because all this Earth has been glowing, and different um, elements glow at different colours, and you can detect how, what's in the moon's um, Earth, where the thing crashed. So it's a useful guide to actually the composition of the surface of the moon, rather like the uh, mission to Temple 1, the deep impact mission of NASA last year, when they slammed a washing machine-sized chunk of copper into that comet to see what it was made of. Yeah, the same idea, although it was sort of less planned. It was just kind of, well, we've got this um, thing orbiting. We might as well, what else can we do with it? Oh, we might as well crash it and see what we can see. Well, thanks, Dave. Uh, stay there, because um, Connor is in Tillingham. Hello, Connor. Oh, hello. Thank you for joining us on The Naked That's Scientist. Right. Um, what, what would you like to talk about? Uh, I, I wonder if we could explain in layman's terms um, what spin means, um, as opposed to electrons and... Oh, not um, Tony Blair's sort of variety. No, not that type, no. <laughs> Dave, are you going to help Connor out? I can see, I can try. Um, 
spin's quite a strange thing. Um, it's basically one way of thinking about it is the magnet. Um, if you look at um, there's various different kinds of spin. One kind of spin is the amount of magnet, sort of a measure of the magnetic field of an electron orbiting um, an atom. Right. Yeah. And um, different a- electrons uh, orbit in different things and have okay. essentially have different currents mm-hmm. and can produce different magnetic fields. Right. Yeah. Now, the strange thing about electrons is even when they're not orbiting an atom, they still seem to have their own little magnetic field. All right, yeah. And um, even sitting on its own, or a proton sitting on its own, has its own spin, yeah. own little magnetic field. Yeah. It also has all sorts of um, strange quantum mechanical effects, mm-hmm. which means because... Sorry. Um, because two electrons which can't can't be in the same place at the same time if they're identical. Yeah. But if you have two electrons with different spins, yeah. they're no longer identical, so they can be in the same space. Oh, right. Um, so it's very important in how atoms work and how electrons orbit around them. I mean, let's add to this, Dave, the, the thing about um, magnetism, because if you when you magnetise a piece of iron, of course, you're making all the electrons spin in the same direction, aren't you? They have the same direction, and that creates a magnetic field. Yeah, um, at, uh, sorry, materials which are magnetic t- tend to have spins which all line up. For some peculiar reason, in iron, atoms with the spins tend to all line up. So they tend to produce a big magnetic field, and you get big areas of the material all becoming magnetised in the same direction. Um, and then other areas will be magnetised in the opposite direction, unless you put a big magnetic field on it, and then it'll all line up, and you get a magnet. Okay, thanks very much, Dave. Connor, does that help you out? Yes, it gives me more of an idea, and also a difficult subject. (laughs) Well, it it is a difficult subject, and part of the problem is you're dealing with something that's so tiny, Mm. it's really hard to actually get in there and see, so we're very much having to design clever experiments to try and understand what's going on without actually ever being able to see what's going on. Have they gone beyond the electron microscope yet? I was just wondering. Uh, no, no, no one can actually create anything that will see things smaller than you can see with an electron microscope because, right. of course, w- the way an electron microscope works is that you're creating a, a beam or a, a series of waves of the wavelength of an electron, and this means that the resolution, the size of things you can see, is down at the scale of the, an electron, and, right, and this gives yeah. you a very, very accurate picture of very, very tiny things. But no one's got beyond that yet. But oh. you know, there, there are things in the, in the sort of production line which are getting better all all the time. Right. Quick go at the quiz. Uh, yes, please. Okay, the correct order of the planets. You've got to listen to this carefully now. Yeah. The correct order of the planets from the Sun outwards is Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Saturn, Jupiter, Neptune, and Pluto. And yeah. we'll assume Pluto's still a planet, so that's mm-hmm. not a trick. Yeah. Fact or fiction? Um, f- uh, fiction. It's um, Jupiter, Saturn, isn't it? Excellent. Absolutely perfect. Well done, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well done. The human retina contains about 100 million rods. True or fact? Fact or fiction, sorry. Um, mm, um, I go for fact on that. Right again, yes. There are about 200,000 of them per square millimetre, which might sound a lot, but owls have a million per square millimetre, which is why they're so good at seeing in the dark. Right. Connor, thanks for your call. OK, Now, after having a break for the summer, Bob Hershon and Chelsea Wald are back with us for Science Update. And this week we'll be finding out about male responses to mating, to the mating game, and how your internal organs may be ageing at different rates. This week we're going to talk about your organs. Are they young and healthy? Old and decrepit? Wouldn't you like to know? But first, some research showing how men are like dogs. When two dogs square off, the top dog growls while the submissive pooch whimpers. And in fact, men do something similar. At the University of Pittsburgh, neuroscientist David Putz created a dating game-like experiment involving single men. 
Each man was told he was competing with a guy in the next room for a date with an attractive woman. After briefly hearing his competitor's voice, which was actually just a recording, he had to tell the woman why she should pick him instead. Males who thought that they were physically dominant, in other words, able to win fights, would lower their voice pitch during this dating game interaction. And men who thought that they were not physically dominant tended to raise their pitch. What's more, Put says the participants were totally unaware they were doing it. And speaking of things you might not be aware of, did you know that your organs can age at different rates? For example, a 60-year-old could have the muscles of a 70-year-old, but the kidneys of a 30-year-old. Well, up to now, it's been hard to assess the vitality of people's individual organs, but a genetic test could soon do the trick. To come up with this test, Stuart Kim of Stanford University and his colleagues looked at gene activity in muscle tissue from people aged 16 to 89. They found that some genes could tell them more about the youthfulness of the muscles than people's actual ages. And in fact, they found that some of those same genes also mark brain and kidney aging, meaning that there may be a genetic signature for aging that's the same for all tissues. Kim says people may someday want to use a test for that signature on their own organs. Maybe if you were 70 and you could have some way to know if your different tissues were physiologically younger or physiologically older, this could help a lot in planning your own health and knowing whether you know, your tissue was going to last to be 100 years old or not could really affect how you treated yourself as you started to age. And he adds that a speedier version of the test could help determine whether organs from older donors are fit for transplant, possibly increasing the size of the organ pool and the success of transplants. Thanks, Chelsea. Well, that's all for this week. We would like to let you know that we have a brand new website over at scienceupdate.com, so come on by and check it out. Next week, we'll tell you about the world's sharpest needle, until then, I'm Bob Hershon. And I'm Chelsea Wald for AAAS, the Science Society. Once again, big thanks to Chelsea and Bob for their update for us across the pond. And make sure you tune in next week to next week's show for more news from America. And of course, we're waiting for your questions right now in the studio. So give us a call 08459 25000. Anything at all about science, medicine, technology, and we will do our best to answer your questions. Of course, I also want to, for my teaser tonight to know how many stars you think there are in the Milky Way and the closest answer will win. Got an answer from Steve in London. He's saying 300 billion. That's pretty close. It's a little bit on the high side, OK? Could be a bit lower than that. So have a think. How many stars in the Milky Way? 08459 email chris at nakedscientist.com or text in on 07786201960. Laying the facts bare... The Naked Scientists. I heard from, email, uh, from Colin, who's uh, written by email, and he says, when the Earth was formed billions of years ago, ago, how long did it take to fill all the oceans and seas, and where did all the water come from? Well, the answer is, Colin, the Earth's about four and a half billion years old. We know from rocks that are in Australia, in Western Australia, they're some of the oldest rocks on Earth, and they contain structures called stromatolites, some of the earliest life found on Earth. They're 3.7 billion years old, and they're sedimentary-type rocks, 
they would have been animals living in the water or, or microorganisms that lived in big giant colonies living in the water. So we know that there was water and things on Earth at least 3.7 to 4 billion years ago. So as soon as the Earth started to cool down enough for liquid water to exist, it began to accumulate. Where did it come from? It came in the form of massive great comets a lot of the time, smacking into Earth because gravity pulled them in like a big hoover and those comets are principally made of ice and so the ice melted and gave us the water which we have today. And there's a lot of it. Right, now this is a question that's coming Dave's way. Dave, um, your parents are cow farmers, so um, down in... down Is it Devon? Um, they used to be, yeah. OK, well, this person, this is um, coming via text, says, why do cows face the same direction in a field all the time? Thanks, Chris. Um, I can only speculate. Um, possibly if the field was on a slope, maybe the cow was more comfortable looking uphill or downhill. And also cows are herd animals, so if there was a threat, they'd all want to run in the same direction. So if they're all pointing in the same direction, then they can all run off at the same direct time. Whereas if they were all pointing in different directions, they could have to spend a time working out which direction to run in. And sort of jostling into each other, trying to get out of the way. Maybe. I'm basically guessing. (laughs) The only thing I'm thinking of is if they're all looking in the same direction, you say herd animal good for protection. Problem is that they haven't got eyes in the back of their head, have they? So there will be some blind spots. There will be, but cows have got quite a wide field of view anyway, so they could be pointing in roughly the same direction and see most of the way around. I know there was a story about five years ago, Dave, where a farmer in Somerset discovered that if he gave his cows water beds to lie on, because you know when cows lay down to chew the cud, he found that if he made them very comfortable in a big sort of cow equivalent of a water bed, his milk yield went up by a huge amount, 50% or something. Quite possibly. I can't say I've heard that one. Andy's on the A120. Hi, Andy. Hello, mate. Welcome to the Naked Scientist. Hello there. Um, I've got a question that leads to another question. When you create an electromagnet, do you control which way will we have the south and which way will have the north poles? Yeah, absolutely, because when you create an electromagnet, what you're doing is passing electricity down a piece of wire, which usually you wrap around a soft steel or or iron core, because iron is ferromagnetic, it's easy to turn it into a magnet, and because when electricity flows along a wire, you get a magnetic field at 90 degrees to the wire, that always follows a rule, and in fact um, you can use your right hand to give the game away. If you form a fist with your right hand, uh, doing doing a sort of thumbs-up signal with your right hand, your thumb points in the direction of the current and your fingers will show you what direction the magnetic field will be in. So uh, this gives you the clue as to the direction that you'll be able to detect magnetism. Now, if you wind the wire in a big coil around the soft iron core, as we mentioned, to make an electromagnet or a solenoid or something, then the magnetic field will go along the core. And so you'll get a north pole at one end and a south pole at the other. And if you reverse the direction of the currents flowing, so you take the battery out and turn it round, for example, then you'll get a reversal of those poles. Would you agree with that, Dave? Is that right? Yeah, Dave, so Dave agrees. That's good. Right. I feel safe now. The question that leads to yeah. is if you can do it so easily, mm. uh, or would it not be possible to magnetise all the steel parts of an aeroplane and give them a definite north and south pole, then do the same to the airfield, runway, or the flight deck of an aircraft carrier, which I should imagine planes on there will be fairly heavily armoured under the wings and what have you. Mm. to reduce the gravitational effect where you've got two north poles facing each other and opposing. (laughs) Right. That way it use a lot less fuel for takeoff. Yeah, the pro- problem is, I think Dave will probably agree with me here, Andy, that um, the problem is that uh, aeroplanes are principally built of aluminium because weight is a huge issue with an aeroplane. Dave, what do you think? 
Yeah, that's one of the problems. The other problem is the with a magnet. If you're holding it near another magnet and it's repelling, it's always going to want to turn upside down so that the South Pole will go towards it. So it would make the planes want to flip upside down when they were landing, which that, would be a bit messy. It would be a bit disadvantageous to flight, wouldn't it? Wouldn't help. <laughs> Takeoff and the landing because the landing don't need a lot of fuel. If you see what I mean, it's the takeoff of an airplane that drinks yard for yard the most fuel it's going to use. Yeah, but you've got to weigh up, Andy, the fact that if you put a lot of magnetizable things on the airplane, it's going to weigh more, so you're going to push no, up the I fuel even more. Magnetize the bits that are made of steel, the engine components, stuff like that. Mm, but they're all moving, aren't they? So you might end up with magnetic fields interfering with each other and that would make parts of the engine unstable if they're moving at different speeds and this would create vibration and it would be very unpleasant for the people on the aeroplane and also it would shake the engine to pieces, potentially. They're also making less and less of the planes out of steel and iron and using aluminium and ceramics and things more and more. Andy, do you want a quick go at the quiz? Yeah, no worries. I'll just remind everyone, we've got a great book up for grabs on the quiz tonight. It's called From Atoms to Infinity. It's uh, Mary and John Gribbin, 88 Great Ideas in Science. It's published by Icon Books, and it's full of fantastic facts. And there's a really nice timeline of, of how the universe formed and everything. The universe formed 15 billion years ago, 10 billion years ago, light from the most distant galaxies we can see now arrives Earth, etc. It's a really fabulous book, so I'm going to give a copy of that away tonight. So that's what you're playing for, Andy, and you've got two out of two to beat. Are you ready? Yep. The hottest temperature ever recorded on Earth was 68 degrees Celsius. Science fact or science fiction? Fiction. That's true, but we're not far off. Um, it was actually 58 degrees, and that was recorded in 1922 in Libya. Very good, Andy. One out of one so far. The largest edible fungus ever found weighed 22 kilograms, or three and a half stone. Do you think that's fact or fiction? Right. Yes, you're absolutely right. It measured over two and a half metres across, and it was a giant puffball, Calvatia gigantea, found in 1987 in Canada. I suspect you can make a lot of risotto out of that. I was looking at a picture of it, actually, Helen, because it is in the Guinness Book of Records, and it looks like a giant bottom, actually, because of the funny shape. But, uh, Andy, well done. Two out of two. Your name is in the hat. Cheers, right. Great having you on the programme. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work. Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. Now, next week, we're going to be live from Norwich, the University of East Anglia, every single day for the BA Festival of Science. Nothing to do with aeroplanes. It's actually the British Association, and it's the country's largest science festival. And it got off to a flying start this week because Nikki uh, Barnes from uh, BBC Radio Norfolk was trying to break a world record. Nikki, were you successful? <laughs> Hello, Chris. Were we successful? Well, we had a go. Now, the current record, it stands at, uh, stands at 19. That was achieved by Sam Sam the Bubble Man. We're not entirely sure where Sam Sam the Bubble Man comes from, but we know he's achieved 19. And this was an attempt at the Inspire Discovery Centre in Norwich. They tried to get 25 people in. Those, they were 25. They were volunteers from the Chilsong Martial Arts Club. And the whole idea was cooked up for, by the Inspire Centre's director, James Pearcy, as part of a big launch event for, as you said, the BA uh, Festival of Science. And the leader of the City Council, Steve Morphew, was on hand to make sure we abided by the rules. I was commentating live today in Maggie Secker's show on BBC Radio Norfolk, and this is the crucial moment. Just listen to this. Here we go again. He's going to go... Is it doing it? Oh! oh! <laughs> it got right over the heads and popped. Does that count? Well, I... I... Steve Morphew seems to think it does. I think it does, actually. I think that. Uh, we think it does, but we're not sure. 
There we go. So did it count? Well, we think it does. Now, how they did it was they got these 25 people standing in this big... It was like a big bubble bath. Not a big bubble bath. A big... Um, uh, my mind's gone blank here. One, one, a little paddling pool, that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and uh, what they did was they, they stood these 25 people in it and then made them all sort of shrink together, very, very, very close together. And then the, the, the main man, James Piercy, he had a huge bubble-blowing wand which was eight feet round and it was welded out of copper piping and it had a big pipe across the middle just to keep it rigid and he had to lift this big big bubble blowing wand from his reservoir of bubbles that was around the side of these people all the way up over their heads and we think we made it but what we don't know is that whether it had to go right over the top of their heads or not and we couldn't quite do that but we've got photographic evidence I was actually roped in to be one of the judges along with Steve Morphew and we've got to send signed reports to say that yes everybody was over five feet high which was the regulation height and that uh, and everybody was there doing exactly as they were told so we've got to find out whether the Guinness Book of Records will accept it as a record or not So were they tremendously slim these people in order to get that many people (laughs) packed into a paddling pool. I mean, that's that's cosy. Well, it, it was it was a specially constructed paddling pool, I have to say. It must have been, but in yeah. fact, we they they went to the martial arts club because I think they were affiliated to the Inspire Centre, and their instructor there decided to bring all the girls along because the girl, she actually said the girls are actually much slimmer than the boys, and it's not that the fact that the boys are chubby; it's just that because <laughs> they do a lot of martial arts, they've got really big shoulders, and they're you know they're they're quite hefty chaps. So you didn't have and anyone so she, standing on their heads then to cheat because that'd be a really good way. To, <laughs> if it, if the bubble just had to go over everyone's head and you turned everyone up upside down, that would be easy, wouldn't it? Uh, well, no, well, this is the point, you see, because the Guinness Book of Records is very, very fussy and it, ha- it specifically says we had a, a proper fact sheet that they'd faxed through to tell us exactly what we needed to do. Everybody had to be there with their feet on the floor. They all had to be more than five feet high. Th- those are the two basic rules, but the bit we're not sure about is whether the bubble just had to go up higher than their heads or whether it had to sort of enclose them a bit. And so that's what we've got to find out, is whether the judges kind of special, will rule. Is it some kind of special bubble mix for this, then? Oh, absolutely, and a very, very closely guarded secret to boot. We know it had glycerin in it, mm. because that would keep, you know, keep it going. And also, uh, actually, James was hoping that he, he wished he'd done the experiment yesterday, because then it was, very, it was very dark and dismal and very rainy, and the atmosphere is very damp. Today, because it's actually extremely sunny, and we're doing it by a window, a bit this, the, the Inspire Centre is in an old church, the sun was streaming through the windows and drying out the bubble mix. And so we had to go around one of those squirty things to, like you, you do when you're misting your plants to keep the atmosphere moist to encourage the bubble to be bubbly. OK, well, thank you very much, Nikki, for bringing us up to speed on your bubbles. When do you find out whether or not you've actually won and got into we the don't know that. records? Everything's got to go off and uh, we'll wait for the, uh, for the judges to decide. So it's going to be a big announcement, though, when, when you find oh, out well, if you've Well, we hope so. It. We'll get back to you and let you know. Thanks, Nikki. The Naked Scientists, and it's Chris and Helen hearing there from Nikki Barnes up in Norfolk where they're trying to break the Guinness Book of Records for how many people you can pack into a bubble. This is The Naked Scientists, and it's our science phone-in. If you have any questions, science, just send them in to us on 08459 25 2000, email chris at nakedscientist.com or text in on 07786 20 1960. We are asking you this evening to take part in our trivia quiz. How many stars do you think there are in the Milky Way galaxy? The person who gets it closest is going to win. We've heard so far from Steve in London, he reckoned there are about 300 billion. And I'm telling you, he's probably not too far away, but maybe a little bit high. So you might want to come down from that a little bit. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. 
just had an email here from Ian in Northampton who, in response to the cow issue, seemed to think that you always find cows so they stand um, downwind, their bottoms into the wind. Otherwise, if a cow faced the wrong way, it might die because it wouldn't be able to burp. Thanks, Ian. Good suggestion. I'm, we may need to get some of our cow scientists onto that to see if that really is the case. <laughs> what do you reckon, Chris? Is this something you've heard of, Dave? Nothing I've heard of, I'm afraid. <laughs> I'd say my expertise is limited on this matter. We could easily we could conduct our own experiment, but I don't know if anyone would let us ha- get our hands on their cows. To turn them all the wrong way. Yes. Or on a big fan to blow them. <laughs> yes. Thanks for that, Dave. I've got an email here from Stephen Bell who says, My wife and I are trying for our second child and they'd like to have a little boy. Are there any foods or supplements we can take to help create Y-chromosome-laden sperms? Um, I'm afraid not, Stephen. The answer is that when you make sperm, what happens is that half your genetic material goes into one sperm and the other half goes into the other one so you make exactly the same number of sperms with X chromosomes because men are X and Y and X sperm make you have a daughter and you have Y bearing sperm that make you have a son and you have 50-50 exactly the right numbers of them in equal amounts and that means that you get 50-50 boys or girls and there's not actually anything you can do to influence that. People historically used to think there was. You could do things like holding one testicle and not the other. They thought that made a difference. Unfortunately, there's no evidence that any of these things really make any difference in working out what sex you end up with. Margaret's joining us from Chelmsford in Corby. Sorry, hello, Margaret. Oh, hi. Thank you for coming on the show. What, what would you like to talk about? Um, I'd like to ask, please, why do spiders, you know the big ones you get, the big house spiders, why do spiders come into the house? Ah, um, there are two reasons for this. One is that it's easy pickings, it's safe, and uh, there, there's lots of food on tap. So there are lots of looks and crannies for them to get into, and they actually can feed on flies and things that are also attracted to your house, and so it's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. You create ample space for them to make webs, you make uh, attract lots of flies and insects they can eat, and it's nice and warm and cosy, and they don't get things eating them like birds. Oh, right. What actually then do you call? You know the really big ones you get, the ginormous ones? What, what do you actually call them? Well, they're, they're called house spiders. Just house spiders? Yeah. In Australia, they have the, their equivalent of a house spider is this enormous thing called a huntsman. Um, okay, and it is literally okay. the size of your hand. It's absolutely huge. Um, when I was in Sydney a couple of years ago, I was staying in this house. I came home from work one day, and we used to have this sort of veranda. It was a closed-off area with a big patio door across it. And we used to open the patio door in the night time because it was so hot in, in the bed in summer that you just couldn't get to sleep and that night we sweated a lot because I wasn't going to open the door because sitting on the veranda was this enormous spider and luckily he went away the next day I don't know where he went but he was out of sight and out of mind but no huntsman spider they can stay in Australia as far as I'm concerned right and is the actual you know the tiny tiny money spiders they call them money spiders are they mm. actually related at all? Do they grow any bigger, or is that the size they stay at? No, that's actually their, their designated size. They're just a very small species of spider, because right. arachnids, which is the family of spiders, is a huge family. There are many, many different species of spider in that family, right up from tiny money spiders right up to tarantulas. Mm-hmm. And so you have a great variety in different sizes of the species. And so as a consequence, you're just going to see, um, sorry, different, different, different species varieties, and so you're going to see different sizes of those. Right. Oh, that's fine. Thanks very much. The average money spider is not going to grow and become a tarantula. It's all right. <laughs> I don't mind the little tiny ones. Those great big ones. I never ever kill them. I always put them outside usually. But is it just better then to leave them in the house if they're in? Well, they're doing actually quite a useful job as long as you don't mind clearing up the cobwebs because they're getting rid of flies and bugs. Right. And lots of people say, "Oh, they hate spiders," but but you know, to my knowledge, spiders don't infect you with salmonella and things because they haven't been crawling around on things that you find laying around in cow fields. Let's let's right. put it that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. But spiders won't infect you with that but a, but if a housefly could well do and so you've got something there which mops up a, a fly
fly. Very useful, right. I think. So I don't really mind spiders that much. I think they do a good job. Right. Oh, that's fine. Thanks very much. Then. Do you want a quick go at the quiz? Go on, then. Yeah, OK. The average human brain weighs about one and a half kilograms. Do you think that's science fact or science fiction? Um, fact. Yep, that's absolutely right. 1.4 kilograms is the average weight of a brain, and it contains over a 1,000 billion nerve cells, which wow. is a 10 followed by 12 noughts. Gosh. And we were talking about water earlier and where water arrived on the Earth, but uh, this question is interesting. 70% of the Earth's fresh water is locked away in the ice of the Antarctic. Do you think that's fact, or do you think that's a bit of a porky? No, I think that's fiction. I'm afraid it's true, actually. The total volume of fresh water frozen on top of Antarctica is 30 million cubic kilometres, which reaches over two and a half kilometres thick in some places. That's oh, a lot wow. of water. That is. Margaret, oh. thank you for joining us. OK, thanks very much. Great yeah. having you on the programme. OK, thank you. Chris and Helen with The Naked Scientists. If you have a science question, then call in now, 08459 25 2000, or you can email chris at nakedscientist.com or text in on 07786 20 1960. Have you got any emails? And a bit yeah, I've got an email here, actually. It's, uh, it's from Peter Shackelford and his wife, Manda, who are currently in Cambodia. Um, have you been to Cambodia, Chris? No, I haven't. Been to Southeast Asia I'm, at I've all? I've not been to that bit at all. The closest I could come to that is Singapore, where I sat okay, off an airplane, right. stayed for a week on my way to Australia. Very nice. So this, you may know the answer for, from that or have experienced this yourself. Basically, they say that they've been travelling around Thailand, Cambodia and Laos and eating some very spicy food. And we are curious in, if, despite immediate discomfort, can spicy food do any damage to our gastrointestinal tract? And we're talking really spicy food. And I have to say, I've been to Thailand. I love Thai food. And the hottest food I think I've ever tasted was in Thailand. It really does blow your brains out, but fantastic. So, yeah, I want to know as well, Chris, do you have an answer to this? Do, is this spicy food actually doing us any harm? I don't think so. People have tried quite hard to prove that it does. They've done simple experiments like you feed people, the same people, two different meals. It's the same meal, except that to one, you've mixed in lots of chilli. To the other, you mix in lots of chilli and some aspirin. Now, the reason you add the aspirin is not to kill any pain. It's because aspirin is known to irritate the stomach a bit. And, oh, right, and then what yeah. you do is you follow up by sticking a camera down into the tummy and seeing if there's any excess inflammation in the meal that's got the chilli, not got the chilli or got the aspirin. And what you find every time is that the aspirin irritates the tummy, but there was no evidence for any ulceration or damage caused by the chillies. So although it causes stinging and burning, I don't think it actually causes... Is it, or, or there's any evidence it can cause harm. Um, and the reason is that chilli is made hot by this stuff, capsaicin. That's the, it's a, an oil-dissolving chemical which is found in chilies, and that's the stuff that's hot. And the way it works is that it comes out of the chilli when you chew it and it locks onto the same nerve fibres in your mouth that signal pain and temperature. And when it locks onto them, it activates the nerve cell. And so your nerve is made to think that, A, your mouth is a lot hotter than it is normally, and also that it's painful. And that's why you get the same symptoms of, as when you get very, very hot. You sweat profusely and get a red face because as far as your head's concerned, the temperature in your mouth has shot up to the equivalent of about 800 degrees. And so it needs to switch on all those reflexes to cool you down. And do we know why drinking a glass of water doesn't really help if you've had a hot curry, doesn't make your health feel any better, but that milk and yoghurt and things like that might help a bit to take that pain away? Yeah, the clue is in, as I said, this stuff, this capsaicin, is soluble in oil, but not in water. So if you want to, to, to nullify or deaden the burning of a curry, a hot curry, you need to drink something or eat something which has got some fat in it because then the capsaicin will be prized away from the nerve fibre that it's stuck onto and it will dissolve preferentially in the oily stuff and get swept away from your mouth and actually go down and irritate your stomach and make that feel sore instead. But uh, that means that then it will take the burning away. Drinking water won't actually help. It'll make it cooler, but it won't actually help. And I guess beer doesn't help either. Well, actually... 
these oily things like to dissolve in alcohol. So if you drink some alcohol, that will suck some of the oil dissolving capsaicin off of the nerve and it will take it away. So alcohol can help. And some people say a nice glass of Singer beer is actually quite beneficial. Great. Well, I hope that, Peter, I hope that helps answer your question. And I hope you continue to enjoy your curries and your spicy food in Cambodia. Um, I've got another question here, which is on food as well. Should we carry on with some food questions? It's food this for is thought, isn't it? A question from Steve Collins, who says, can you tell me if vegetables have been cooked and refreshed in cool water um, and then reheated in a microwave, do they lose all of the goodness, vitamins, etc., from from the vegetables? I mean, you always hit, hear about cooking vegetables too much really gets rid of all those you know, good vitamins and the chemicals which we're actually you know and it's the taste as well why would you want to boil the heck out of your vegetables in the first place i mean i prefer salads actually yeah sure but you've hit the nail on the head when you boil these things putting them in very hot water breaks down the wall that surrounds all the cells in the vegetables and the cells then swell up and burst because the water gets in from the cooking water bursts the cells and all the goodness in the cells spills out into the water so actually we did some experiments um quite a while ago actually and some other people have done this very very carefully where you cook vegetables in a cooking pot you cook them in a microwave or you cook them in a steamer and the best way to cook them and preserve the integrity of of, of the uh, vitamins and the concentration of the vitamins in the food is you put them in the steamer and if you steam stuff then you actually maintain more vitamins than any other way of preparation got a quick question for you here dave this has come from hong kong uh it's from leo he says i'm a loyal listener in hong kong thanks for your program i love it i have a quick question um recently I found a small cockroach wandering around inside my microwave and to kill it I switched on the microwave for about 30 seconds. Surprisingly it wasn't killed and was still alive. Why? Many of my friends with scientific backgrounds tend to believe that microwaves aren't safe but this seems to suggest that it's perfectly safe. What do you think Dave? Well there's two different effects that this could be because. Um, one of them is that your microwave has only got a few hot spots which is um, an experiment which Chris was doing on TV recently. Um, that quite a lot of the microwave actually isn't very hot so if the cockroach was walking around in the cool bits it would be absolutely fine because there's not actually many microwaves there. Um, the other thing that could be that the uh, cockroach is quite small and the wavelength of the microwaves is quite long so the electric cuts, so the longer the thing, the bigger the thing is you put in there, the more um, voltage you can build up so the bigger currents you'll be moving around so the hot shit will get, so it could be small enough not to get too hot. But I think most likely it was just walking around all the cool bits of the microwave where there aren't very many microwaves so it doesn't get heated up very much. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. Right, let's head back to the kitchen, uh, to Hunsbury School in Northamptonshire, where we were telling you earlier how you can make your very own lava lamp. We've uh, got Derek and Dave out there with Paige and uh, Jack. Let's find out how they got on. Derek. Hello there. Welcome back to Hunsbury Park Primary School, where uh, Dave, uh, Paige and Jack are here with myself, ready to do the experiment. So uh, let's do it, basically. Uh, Dave, why didn't you instruct uh, these guys on what to do? Well, we've got the oil sitting on top of the um, squash at the bottom. So, Jack, if you'd like to grab one of those tablets and chuck it in, and we can see what happens. Paige seems to be hiding at the back. OK, and tell us what you see. Let's get down here. What can you see, Paige? What's the tablet doing? It's fizzing up. Okay, and then what's happening in the oil? It looks all bubbly and I can't describe it. Okay, what about you, Jack? What do you think's happening? Tell us, tell us what you see. Well, I can see loads of bubbles in between the glass, kind of a lava lamp, and um, not what I thought it would be, but oh well. Surely you're not disappointed. I mean, I, I don't know. I think it looks pretty cool, really. I mean, what do you think? Do you like it? Yeah, it looks really, it looks really cool. 
Okay, I mean, what we've got here is we've got the tablet kind of in the water level, so it's right at the bottom, and it's producing all these bubbles because that's what this tablet does, basically. It kind of dissolves and produces bubbles. But when they all hit the oil level, they actually form these kind of large gloopy bubbles that rise up and then drop back down again. So you've got kind of this strange lava lamp effect, really, with bubbles going up and down and up and down, and actually this is getting really full up with bubbles now as well. So there you go. Do you like it, Paige? What do you think? Yeah, I think it's really cool. OK, well, Dave, um, I think we need an explanation for this, basically. So uh, what is going on with this, this crazy lava lamp that we've made? Well, the reason why the tablet is, makes all this fizz is there's two substances in it. One of them's an acid, something like tartaric acid, which is dry. And when it mixes with water, it turns into an acid. And the other one is called bicarbonate of soda, which has got a gas called carbon dioxide locked in it. So when it gets wet, that carbon dioxide gets released and forms loads of bubbles. Now, water's heavier than oil, so it sinks to the bottom. But foam is lighter than oil, so it floats. So it makes all this bubble, you get, like bubbles of foam which float up to the top. Then the bubbles pop at the top. And then, you get wa- then what's left is only water. And water's heavier than oil, so it sinks down. So you get bubbles of foam coming up, they pop, and then they sink down to the bottom. And then you get more coming up, and you get this lava lamp effect. OK, yeah. So, so the, the bubbles that you see coming off the, um, the tablet in the first place, and which would have come off if people had used baking soda as well, um, are these like the bubbles you get in a fizzy drink or something? Yeah, it's exactly the same gas. It's also the same gas you breathe out. Yeah, carbon dioxide, in fact. So there you go. So then what we saw was, was bubbles being formed in the water, and so these bubbles uh, were actually very light, and so they floated up to the top of the oil. But as soon as they got there, they pop and the gas leaves, and then they become water again, and so they like to sink back down. And, uh, and we actually had some coloured stuff in there as well. We had some squash in there. So that kind of meant it was actually quite a coloured effect as well. So I think we've made something very economical. No need to go out and buy lava lamps. You can do it yourself with us, the Naked Scientists. So there you go. Um, Paige and Jack, what do you think of the experiment? Do you think you'd like to go and do this at home again, Paige? Yeah, I do. OK, then. And um, what about you, Jack? How did you like it? I would like to do it at home, yeah. It's, it looks really, really fun. OK, but are you disappointed that we didn't have an explosion like you were hoping? Yeah, sort of, and no, some ways. OK, all right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're kind of happy with it, but uh, maybe we'll come back here another time and make some big bangs or something. OK, well, thank you very much to Paige and Jack and today for setting it up. And, of course, we are now back at The Naked Scientist doing some kitchen science for you guys, so we'll be back next week, basically. And so um, do join us then, and until then, it is goodbye. Thank you very much, Derek, and also Dave, who's currently also with us here on the programme out there in Humbury School, and Paige and Jack. Now, uh, I've got a question here from Kerry, who's in Kingsland. She says, not a wind-up this, a mouse at three milligrams of my hormone tablets, estradiol valerate. What will happen to the mouse? Well, Kerry, that's an, that's an oral contraceptive tablet, so it's a dose of, of the female hormone, estrogen. Mice use the same hormone, estrogen. In fact, um, hormone replacement therapy, HRT, is made by collecting the urine of pregnant mares in Canada, and they have thousands and thousands of horses kept perpetually pregnant and then collecting their urine so we can turn it into tablets to stop people having what Sarah in Northampton is going to talk to us about, which is hot flushes. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Thank you. Talk to us about your question. Well, what it is, I'm obviously going through the menopause and having hot flushes, and I know it's caused by hormones, but how does the body manage to take you from freezing cold one minute to sweating as if you're in an oven the next minute? 
Well, it's not actually affecting your temperature. What's actually happening, Sarah, is that your body is fooled into thinking that the temperature has changed and it's mounting the normal reaction your body would make when it's either too hot or too cold, which is why you get this hot flush or cold, or cold sensation. So when you're too hot, what your body says is, I have too much energy in my body, I need to lose some heat. And the way it does that is it opens up all the blood vessels very close to the surface of the skin. So it turns your skin into the equivalent of a human radiator. And all this very hot blood goes very close to the surface of the skin, outside the protective layer of fat that we have under the skin. So it, there's no insulation around the blood and the temperature can flow away from your blood vessels and give heat to the room. And that's how you cool down. So when you're very, very hot, that's, that's how it happens. And when you have the menopause, as you say, you get some hormone spikes because the ovaries normally respond to hormones coming out of the brain by making some estrogen. And when that doesn't happen because the ovaries have stopped producing estrogen because of the menopause, these levels of hormones coming from the brain get very, very high and they can trigger these other side effects like the hot flushes and things you've described. All right, thank you. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Thank you. Bye. Very quick question for you, Dave. We've got literally a minute for you to answer this. This is from Al Kessel, who says, Why is it that on a hot day I can see waves in the air coming off car roofs or anything metal for that matter? What's the shimmering effect caused by? Well, basically, the hot roof is very, very hot, and that makes the air expand. And uh, when air is expanded, it, um, air will go through it slightly faster than normal air. Um, and so where the t joints between the hot air and the cold air, when the light hits it, they tend to, the light tends to bend a bit backwards and forwards, and so you get a distorted image of what's going on behind, and that distortion changes as the hot air moves. So you get this shimmering image of what's behind the hot air. Thank you very much, Dave, and I hope that answers that question for you, Al. Right, now this week, very exciting, because we're going to be off in Norwich for the BA Festival, and we'll be here with you every night between half past seven and eight o'clock, and we're going to be talking tomorrow night about the supernatural and also how to become a super sportsman. Next time, we'll be finding out how plants have evolved solar panels to turn their flowers into saunas for insects, also how global warming is affecting animal migration and reproduction, and what we can all do to minimise the effects of climate change worldwide. So if you have any questions on any of those topics, then please send them to me, chris at nakedscientist.com. In the meantime, have a great week, and we'll see you next time. Oh, and uh, the Milky Way contains about 200 billion stars. Give or take a few. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.